Our reading will be verses 5 through 11. Our study will be Acts 12, verses 5 to the very end, which is verse 25. So, let us stand and read God's Word this morning. I I don't know what Pastor Tom was saying about dancing. What was he saying? I didn't hear him. (laughs) That... uh, that beat is kind of addicting, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard not to move. <laughs> Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 5. Let's read down through verse 11. Let's read together. Let's read aloud. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, That night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you. For your precious word, we ask that you will, through the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom and understanding that these words today and those that are to follow will be, Lord, from your heart to us, an encouragement, an exhortation, a stirring, but may they be, Lord, for us, life. And may they be, Father, for us, that which brings us ever closer to you in prayer, in our times of communion, in our times of of being with you, Lord, abiding and dwelling in your very heart. We thank you so much for granting us this opportunity today. In Jesus' name, amen. You all may be seated. One of the great and most powerful words of the Bible is the simple word, but. B-U-T. Any dictionary will label it as a conjunction and a preposition and will define it as however... On the other hand, or except. One example that you find in dictionaries of the usage of the word is, I would have drowned, but for you. I would have drowned, but for you. Interesting. Aside from that particular example, we don't normally consider the word but as some great word, but, biblically, it denotes change, leading to some great spiritual truths. Take, for example, in the very, the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5-8, through 8, where it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them, but, it says in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What a significant change. What we read in the first couple of verses there, how that word but changes everything in our minds. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We bring it to New Testament times in the writing of Paul to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2. There in verse 1, he begins this particular thought. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Think about that for a moment. Think that in the first three verses of this particular passage, if we kind of just put aside the very first few words, and think that we were dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, being sons of disobedience, and conducting ourselves in all of these things, we would say that that's a pretty miserable situation until you get to verse 4 where it says, But... And not only does it say, but, it says, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love this example of that word, that tiny little word. How great is its meaning to change and to allow us to realize the change that we have experienced because of Jesus Christ. But God, rich in mercy because of His great love, made us alive together with Christ. Now I said all of that to focus upon that one little word in verse 5 of Acts chapter 12. Because it says here in verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him. By the church. Consider how powerful this word is when it brings to mind the situation that Peter is in. Because the word but here spells only doom for Herod. You see, as we learned last time, Herod Agrippa I, in wanting to gain the favor of the Jews, had stretched out his hand to aggressively harass and and persecute the believers in Jesus Christ, eventually killing James, the brother of John, with a sword. And what a blessing to know that when Herod's prison gates clanged shut, the gates of heaven were swung wide open, all because the church fell to its knees in ceaseless prayer. You see, the word constant here means that they prayed without ceasing, as it tells us actually in the King James Version of the Bible. They prayed without ceasing. The Greek word itself meaning intense. They prayed not only constantly, but they prayed intently and intensely for the burden that they were lifting up to God. The only other time that the word is used in this particular uh, form is by Peter himself. Peter understood what this word meant and he applied it in a different way, but it says in 1 Peter 4 verse 8, above all things, he says, have fervent love. The word fervent there is the same Greek word that we find in verse 5 where it says constant. Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. A fervent love, an intense love, a constant love, a love that never ceases. Now, a form of that word was also used by Luke in describing the intensity of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, where Jesus was was praying intently, so much so that He began to sweat drops of blood. That's intense. Consider that much of our prayer... Consider that much of our prayer is is, is powerless because it lacks this earnest intensity. 
It lacks earnestness sometimes. It lacks that, that kind of intensity, that kind of constancy, that kind of fervency as described here. In other words, we pray sometimes as if we want God to care about things we don't care too much about. Have you ever thought about that in your prayer life? That we pray sometimes as if we want God to care about things that we don't care too much about. But it is this kind of prayer, this intense kind of prayer, that bombarded the throne of God while Peter was laying in prison. It is this kind of prayer that makes iron gates give way. As we saw in our text earlier, let's read it again, verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping. You know, we, you know if we only read certain passages of the, of the Gospels, and, and this particular part of the book of Acts, we think that all Peter ever did was sleep. Yeah, he slept on the Mount of Transfiguration. He slept in the Garden of Gethsemane. But those were different times. This was a different kind of sleeping. Peter was sleeping soundly, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the doors, or before the door, were keeping the prison. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie your sandals. And so he did, obediently. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. In other words, come on, get dressed, put your shoes on, let's go. And so he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real. But he thought that he was seeing a vision. Now, you know, recently Peter had been getting some visions from the Lord, and so, well, this looked like a vision. And when they were past, it says in verse 10, when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know. In other words, when Peter woke up, when he finally got out of that little daze that he was in, he says, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. What was the, their expectation was that Herod was going to do exactly to Peter what he had done to James earlier. That was the expectation. So folks, let me tell you something. Let me tell you that chains, that guards, that prison doors mean nothing to the Lord and His messengers. There was nothing, you see. There was nothing to keep Peter behind those doors any longer than he needed to be. He was set free instantly. And to look at Peter in that state that he was in is also significant for us in that he showed no signs of anxiety whatsoever. And you would think, somebody that is going to his death the next day is not going to get a very, uh, very uh, sleep-filled night. It isn't going to be comfortable. Certainly they had no Tempur-Pedics at the time. And so, we see Peter sound asleep. He wasn't shaking. He wasn't white as a sheet with fear. He wasn't pacing the floor of his cell. He wasn't summing up the reserves of his courage to face death. He was fast asleep on what may have been the last night before his execution. And this brings to mind a beautiful scripture. Psalm 127 verse 2. that says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep for so he gives his beloved sleep you know even Jesus said that we were to be anxious for nothing the, the apostles taught us that we were to be anxious for nothing but to give thanks to God in all things Jesus would say look I've clothed the lilies of the field the birds are all well taken care of? How much more are you who have been made in, my, in, in God's image? How much more? 
He gives his beloved sleep. And so Peter's was a sleep of rest. It was a sleep of peace. You would think that he probably learned that from the Lord Jesus, who at one time was with his disciples on a boat on the Galilee when a storm came up. And all of the disciples were just freaking out because of the storm and all. And they said, where's Jesus? Well, he was in the boat sleeping. Soundly sleeping. Calmly sleeping. As the Lord who is in control of all the waters and all the storms himself would be. That was how Peter was sleeping that night. And so it would take a pretty good nudge then from an angel (laughs) and a spotlight to wake him up. It tells us that the angel had to wake him up. And I get this picture that if Peter's lying on the floor, the angel came in and had to give him a good kick. Hey, wake up! The light of the, you know, the glory of this, this particular uh, messenger is, is so bright in the place. And even still, Peter, who had been accustomed to receiving visions, as I said, was obeying without real, really knowing what was happening. The angel even has to tell him to get dressed and to tie his shoes, but, but I'm sure that he had to sense that the Lord was doing something great. Think of it. Chains had fallen off of his hands. They began to pass the guards and the guard posts, getting to an iron gate that opens of its own accord. It just opens by itself. And that sure seems like a vision or a dream passing before Peter's eyes, wouldn't you say? All of these things happening as if you were dreaming them. <laughs> but they were real. It brings to mind the question, how many of us worry? How many of us worry about that iron gate in our lives? The one that we always think is just going to be closed and we need it to be open. A gate that seems to keep us bound into, in some things, in some areas of our lives and we're just wishing that thing would just open up to free us, you know. It, it, it seems an impossibility, but, but we worry nonetheless, don't we? Anxious months before even getting to that particular time. Like some people today, getting anxious already about April 15th. You see, you got the idea? We're anxious now about that day. But God is able to and will take care of things when we get to it. Now, I'm not saying that He's going to do your taxes for you. I'm not, going to, I'm not saying that He's going to kind of move the decimal point over a bit, you know, to help you out. You guys have to be doing your own stuff, doing honesty, you know, the things that you need to do. You know, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, render unto the Lord what is the Lord's. But in those troublesome times of your life, God is able to and will take care of all of these things when we get to it, whatever it may be, and I'll tell you why, because God knows how to deliver. God knows how to deliver. I don't care what people say about Pizza Hut being good delivery. Or Domino's, we deliver. You know, they may deliver pizzas, but they don't know how to deliver like God can deliver. Take, for example, what it says in Psalm 34, verses 15 through 19. I would encourage you to read the whole psalm. Tremendous psalm about the fear of the Lord. About trusting in the Lord. But here in verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears. And notice this, and delivers them out of all their troubles. That's our God. That is our great God. He delivers us out of all of our troubles. The psalmist goes on to say, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And notice this. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord knows how to deliver. As a matter of fact, Peter himself, since we're talking about Peter today, Peter himself has written, as he does in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And these temptations are not just temptations, but really it, 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 it uh, encompasses trials and tribulations as well. 
that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And you would even have to think that as Peter is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he's thinking back about Herod as well. You see, the Lord delivered him from the hand of Herod. And we'll see later how God deals with Herod. So in the Scriptures, for the most part, getting back to our story with the angel and, and how this messenger of God has, has helped uh, Peter get set free. But, but in, in, in the Scriptures, for the most part, angels always seem to be in a hurry to get their duties done, and, they, and, and then they vanish from sight as soon as possible, never lingering long, perhaps wishing to avoid the embarrassment of man's tendency to worship them. And keeping in tune with this, the angel was gone immediately. And Peter was left to ponder the whole situation now that he was fully awake. Because if you'll go back to verse 11 of our text in Acts 12, it says, And when Peter had come to himself. You ever came to, have you ever come to yourself? You know, you just get all the sleep out of your eyes and, you know, you, you kind of get out of that... Uh, that little place where you, you think you're still asleep, whatever, but you, you finally, you know, you shake yourself free from all of that stuff and you finally come to yourself. You're awake, in other words. When Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. From the hand of Herod. The hand of the one who began to persecute the church in a, in, a, in a totally different way now, taking James, one of the apostles, and killing him by the, using the sword. And it brings to mind, why did James die? And why was Peter delivered? Why did James die? Didn't they pray for James like they were praying for Peter? We talked about this last time. Only God knows. Only God knows that answer. And as we said last time, the simple answer can be found in the sovereignty of God. It can be found in the sovereign will of God. But let me just say this about James. James, in fact, really did graduate. He graduated into glory. And if he were to be able to say anything to us right now, presently, he would say that he would never consider himself to be a loser in any way. Why? Because instantly he was taken into the presence of his God. Into the presence of his Lord. So he wouldn't say, oh, I was just a poor soul that had to get killed first here. Even though he wasn't the first to get killed for his faith. He was the first apostle. He just graduated. I think it's important for us to realize that in, in the course of our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. You see, Peter's deliverance itself was God's calculated and intentional answer to Herod's defiance, to Herod's disobedience, to Herod's insubordination before God. And it was also God's answer to the Jews' hateful delight in what had happened to James and what they thought was going to happen to Peter. Peter may have had this particular psalm on his mind and heart when all of this was going on. Psalm 25, verse 15 my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He shall pluck my feet out of the net. I wonder how many of us have experienced that. We find ourselves bound to some situation that we're in no control of. And we pray for God to deliver us. And when He does, are we quite aware to say, my eyes are ever toward Him because He's plucked my feet out of the net. Are we quick to thank Him? Are we quick to be grateful? Are we quick to give Him the glory for what He's done? Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we get out of a situation that God takes us out of, actually, and then we go, oh, phew. oh great. Instead of saying, oh, God, thank You. You're so great. You're great. You're wonderful. Well, Peter now being left alone out on the street by the angel, 
Not an ex-con, an escape con. <laughs> an escape convict out on the street. You know, an ex-con at least, if somebody you know serves his time when they get out. They used to say when you get out of prison, they'd give you a sawbuck and a suit, you know. Tell you, go home. Sawbuck, by the way, is a $10 bill. I think it is, isn't it still? No, but Peter didn't have a sawbuck. He just had an angel. He had God's way of getting him out. Anyway, he's out on the street, desiring to make contact with a praying church, those who have been praying with him and for him. Which leads us to one of the most humorous incidents in the Bible. Acts 12, verse 12, through verse 17. I, I just, I, every time I read this, I just get so excited about the humor that God has in his word. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Rhoda, by the way, uh, means rose. (laughs) And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. But she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So here's the picture. The escaped convict Peter is now at a door where he's hoping to be allowed to get in, you know, hide from the authorities as it were, but also to be with his people. And and he knocks on the door and says, hey, open up, it's me, Peter. And Rhoda goes to the door. Who is it? It's Peter. It's me. Open up. And she's so excited about this that she says, Oh, it's Peter. And she runs and leaves him outside. And she goes tells everybody, Hey, Peter's at the door. And verse 15, it says, They said to her, You're beside yourself. Which means, You're crazy. And yet she kept insisting that it was so. No, Peter's at the door. Now can you imagine, all of this is going on. Peter's at the door. No, you're crazy. Peter's at the door. And Peter's outside. Let me in! And then they tell her, so they said, it's his angel. Now they had this thing, you know, in in those days, the the Jews believed that they had guardian angels, and and somehow those guardian angels kind of looked like you. Probably sounded like you. Now, that was their understanding of guardian angels, you know. That's so it's his angel. It's not Peter. Now, Peter continued knocking. Verse 16. Which, which teaches me something. It tells me that Peter actually listened to Jesus. For at one time, Jesus, and I believe on the Sermon, Sermon on the Mount, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, Knock. And the door shall be open for you. So Peter said, okay, Lord. And he's knocking. But if you remember, the word knock means continually knock and the door shall be open unto you. And that's what Peter did. He kept knocking and knocking and knocking. He didn't say, you know, maybe this is the wrong house. Maybe I'm on the wrong block. Oh, he's at the right place. So Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. You know, this is kind of humorous in itself. I'll tell you why in just a moment. <laughs> they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, because evidently when, when they saw him, there was all this commotion. It's Peter, it's Peter. And everybody's just yelling and screaming and, and saying all kinds of things. He says, be quiet, please. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And by the way, the James that he mentions here is, is the, brother of, the half-brother of Jesus. The one who wrote the book of James, by the way. And he departed and he went to another place. So isn't that great? Here's the story. Isn't it great? I mean, it's, it's just a, a beautiful story. Peter knocks on the door, he's recognized by Rhoda, and she's so excited that Peter's there uh, that she runs to tell everybody in the house, leaving Peter outside, on top of it all, everyone in the house thinks she's crazy. Uh, Folks, I think that it's okay. I think that it's okay to be comforted and to be amused by their little faith, by the little faith of these Christians who spend a tremendous amount of time praying for Peter and then find it hard to believe that God actually answered their prayer. 
That's why I say it's amusing that it says they were astonished. It's Peter. Well, haven't you been praying for him to get out of prison? Why are you astonished? You see, I've got to tell you this story. And the story is, it's told of a, of a small town in, in which there were no liquor stores. Eventually, however, a nightclub was, was built right on Main Street. Members of one of the churches in the area was, were so disturbed uh, that they conducted, a several, uh, or they conducted several all-night prayer meetings and asked the Lord to burn down that den of iniquity. Lightning struck the tavern a, a short time later, and it was completely destroyed by fire. The owner, knowing how the church people had prayed, sued them for the damages. And his attorney claimed that their prayers had caused the loss. The congregation, on the other hand, hired a lawyer and fought the charges. And after much deliberation, you see, the judge declared, it's the opinion of this court that wherever the guilt may lie, the tavern keeper is the one who really believes in prayer, while the church members do not. (laughs) What a story. In other words, sometimes we don't believe our own prayers. Oh, how we need to trust the Lord when we pray. The Lord says, come, cast your cares upon me. I care for you. You know, one thing I do need to mention is concerning the insistence of Rhoda that Peter was actually there while everyone kept telling her that it was impossible. She had reason to be insistent and continually assert that Peter was there. She had reason. But it would have been better to have opened the gate. It would have been better to have opened the gate. I mean, we're that way sometimes with the Word of God. We can be insistent about a truth in Scripture without ever opening the Word to show some doubter how right God is. We sometimes let our emotions get in the way of truth. We never open the gate to show them, look, here it is. Here's what it says. Here's what God does. Here's how great God is. You know, it's a good thing that God keeps knocking at our door. Isn't it? Isn't it great to know that God keeps knocking on the door of our hearts? We need that. Because sometimes we forget to open the gate. We can be excited about what God's doing. We need to open the gate. Verse 17, to calm the commotion, Peter motions to them with his hand to keep silent. He he declares to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went went to another place. Uh, As I mentioned, the, the James here is the Lord's brother who became a prominent figure, by the way. In the, in the Jerusalem church, and he was considered one of the pillars of the church, as mentioned by Paul in Galatians 2, verse 9, where it says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And I want you to notice here that uh, James actually supersedes Peter. Peter, who is Cephas, by the way. That's his, 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 real, that's his true name, Cephas. It says James, Cephas, and John. Uh, so James is mentioned first. Now, how often when we see the, the three mentioned uh, earlier, you know, Peter, James, and John, James, the, the brother of John, Peter, James, and John, Peter was always in the lead, but now we see James, James's name mentioned first. And so uh, evidently after all of this, he, he took uh, some prominence in the, in the church. Well, except for a brief mention in chapter 15, this is actually the last that Luke speaks of Peter. He, he would go underground. Now, Peter, 
He'd go underground at this point. Later, to meet with Paul in Antioch. And then he would write his two letters before he is sent into glory with his God. So as we read on now, at verse 18, it says, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. By the way, that's a great understatement, isn't it? There was no small stir (laughs) among the soldiers about what had happened or what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. And that stayed there is a strong statement. That's where he ended up being. No longer in Judea, where the Jews were. Now in Caesarea, where more of the Roman uh, life and lifestyle was. You see, in verse 18, we find, when, as I said, one of the greatest understatements of the Bible, no small stir. Herod was furious at having lost his prized prisoner, and he sought to find out if it was an inside job. I mean, think about it. Chains are taken off. You needed a key for that. Doors are, are being opened. You need keys for that. Walk by guard posts, walk by guards, get to the prison gates. Those gates open of their own accord. Wait a minute, something's wrong here. Something stinks here. It's got to be an inside job. Well, yeah, in a way it was. The angel came inside and put Peter out. But then, according to the code of Justinian, A guard or guards who allowed a prisoner to escape was liable to the same penalty that the prisoner would have suffered. So at the very least, 16 guards lost their lives that day. Remember that Peter had been guarded by 16 guards. At least 16 guards would have lost their lives that day. And you have to ask the question, was that God's fault or was that... Herod's fault. Because people would blame God for this. Why did those 16 men, they're just doing their jobs, why would they have to lose their lives? Because God wanted to rescue His disciple out of there. Folks, don't lose sight of something. It wasn't God's fault that those men died. Consider that Herod was somebody who should have known God and chose not to follow Him, not to serve Him, and in fact, stand up against God and kill one of His, one of his uh, apostles. That's the defiance, you see. That's the disobedience. That's the insubordination of Herod toward God. Now, I would like to believe that some of those soldiers, especially those who were chained to Peter, trusted in Christ to save them. We've oftentimes heard, and we'll see this later in the book of Acts, that Paul, the apostle, was chained to guards, and those guards were the prisoners to Paul, not Paul, the prisoner to them. Because those guards could not escape Paul preaching the gospel to them. And many of them came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and many of them came to have their households be saved. So I can see no difference in Peter also being chained to guards and sitting there and being able to say to them, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ and you can't go anywhere. You're going to guard me, but I'm going to tell you about the Jesus that I followed, the Jesus that I knew, the Jesus that I touched, the Jesus that I served, the one that I rejected in a sense when I denied Him three times and knew that He went to this cross and and, and realizing later that He went there on my behalf as well as your behalf to die for the sins of men. But I know that Jesus came looking for me to, to comfort me and to encourage me and He found me after He had risen from the dead. And He spoke to me and He encouraged me. And I'm encouraging you to get to know Jesus Christ. 
And I want you to know that I want you to be in heaven and I want you to see, and I want to be able to see you in heaven when I go there soon. Because I know where I'm going to be for eternity. And you need to know where you're going to be for eternity. I want to believe. And I'd like to believe that those soldiers, many of them, can't say that all of them, I won't know until eternity. But that they trusted in Christ to save them. As for Herod, he was firmly disgusted with the humiliation that he felt before the Jews, whose favor he sought. And he turned his back on Jerusalem. He turned his back on Judea. He turned his back on the Jews. And he went to abide in Caesarea, wanting to erase from his mind the memory of that humiliation by being in a more pagan environment. Those who have been to Israel have been there at Caesarea, the very place where Herod retreated, right on the seashore. Beautiful place. We're going to hear more about that here in just a moment. Look at verses 20 through 25. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now why we're told this, uh, we'll see, you know, somewhat of a reason, but we don't know why he was angry with them. But nonetheless, it says Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon being uh, up north of, of Caesarea, on the coast. They were actually uh, cities made up of the Phoenicians that had come by sea to that port, and they were still... Uh, uh, tied to you know the uh, to ships and, and all of that, but it goes on to say, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. That's it. The story's over for Herod. He was eaten by worms and died. Wonderful before lunch. Verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So after the humiliation in Jerusalem, Herod was certainly eager to find someone to bully. (laughs) Because that's all he was, was a big bully. And for whatever reason we are not too sure of, he was displeased with Tyre and Sidon, whose, whose authorities were now anxious to please Herod. And so we're back somewhat in the political arena. The, the, the possibility exists here that Herod has set up an economic embargo in retaliation over some uh, domestic issue with them and Tyre and Sidon. And Herod had no authority over these cities, but he also knew the benefits of peace in the region, and so he allowed the representatives of Tyre and Sidon to present their needs jointly. In any event, these Phoenician delegates probably Grease the palm of Blastus, the king's closest official, so that they might ask for peace and have the food embargo lifted. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. That's still going on today, even in our own country. It's, it's, it's called lobbying, <laughs> I suppose. You know, there are lobbyists, you know, that are trying to gain favor with politicians and so they grease their palms not with grease but with money you understand this is talking about bribery there's nothing new under the sun the ancient Jewish historian Josephus describes the death of Herod in some gory detail we won't get into the gory detail but I I wanted to give you some idea of what Josephus writes because I want you to notice how close to the scriptures it is He writes, on the second day of which shows he put on a garment, speaking of Herod, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, 
and of texture truly wonderful. And he came into the theater early in the morning. By the way, that theater is this, this theater that, that sits looking out into the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And you, when you go to Israel, you see, you, you sit in that place and you see where Herod would have, would have sat. Josephus goes on and he says, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it. The sun coming up over the theater, you know, because it comes up in the east, and of course the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. And as the sun rises, there he is sitting on his throne, and as the sun shines on him, there's this radiant reflection. And he goes on, and he says that the fresh reflection of the sun's rays was upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that look intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, he interjects, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them, nor reject their impious flattery. And of course he would go on and describe Herod as dying from a violent pain in his belly. It was then that he was struck with that pain in his gut. And Luke says that he was eaten by worms and he died. Five days later, Herod died. I wonder if the angel that had released Peter was also the one that struck Herod because he did not give glory to God. He received the accolades. He received the reverence, but he did not give it to God. And he should have known better. He was part Jewish. But you see, he had never served God unless it just served his purposes. How we need to be careful that we don't serve God to serve our purposes. Herod had fought against God and his death by worms was befitting his spiritual state. In other words, he was corrupt from the inside out. On the other hand, the church submitted to God. They got in line with his plan through prayer. I want you to consider that significant word one more time, the word but. In verse 24, after all that it says about Herod, it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. In verse 25, it talks about Barnabas and Saul and and John Mark. Uh, We're going to begin there next time because that ties in more to chapter 13. So we'll end here in verse 24. Herod was dead, but the church was very much alive. And growing rapidly. Now, was there a secret to that? Was there a secret to that? Well, simply, the church was a praying church. The church was a praying church. Over the last 24 years, I have desired that this church would be a praying church. Not that we always just meet for prayer. We have various prayer meetings, various prayer groups. But that we would have learned as as members of, of, of the body here and of this congregation. That no matter where we are, we can pray. No matter where we are, we can be in one accord, praying for the needs of, of the church, praying for the needs of the body, praying for the needs of, of, of people that when God's word goes forth, it will come into their hearts, into their lives, and make those changes that are necessary with eternal, with eternal benefits. We need to be a praying church. 
The missionary, Isabel Kuhn, used to pray this prayer when facing trouble. She would say to the Lord, If this obstacle is from Thee, Lord, I accept it. But if it is from Satan, I refuse him and all his works in the name of Calvary. A magnificent prayer. Alan Redpath used to say this. He said, let's keep our chins up and our knees down. We're on the victory side. We need to remember that the Lord works when churches pray. The Lord works when churches pray. And Satan still trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. The enemy still trembles. And I want to close with the words of Peter. We've spoken much about his life in this particular chapter. But Peter, quoting from Psalm 34, which we read earlier, would use that psalm to express his heart. And in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, and again quoting from Psalm 34, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His ears are open to their prayers. You see, He was living testimony at that time of that very verse, of that very Scripture. The church was praying constantly, intensely, fervently. And God sends a messenger and delivers Peter from the hands of Herod and from the expectation of the Jewish people. Now, they just needed to believe it. Because when they saw him, they were astonished as if to say, I can't believe it. Let's come to this place in our spiritual life, in our prayer life, that when we pray and God answers, that we pray first of all with expectation, but that when God answers, our response is not astonishment, our response is thanksgiving. Our response is gratitude. Our response is to say, Lord, you're faithful. You are always faithful. You are always good. You are always merciful. You are always true to your word. Let's take that perspective about prayer today. And let's pray that way this week. Let's pray to see God's hand move. So that He will receive the glory. And the good itself, we will give thanks for. Let's pray.